Whether you spell it with a C or an H, two N's or two K's, Hanukkah arrived last night at sundown and continues through December 23rd. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, I'll be talking to a local rabbi about the history of Hanukkah. A renowned storyteller and a singer-guitarist will combine their talents to share a Hanukkah tale, and will explore the history of the Jewish Lower East Side in Manhattan. It's a special Hanukkah edition of Cityscape. Glad you can join us. Hanukkah and Christmas are both winter holidays that involve lights and gifts, but that's pretty much where the similarities end. I spoke to Rabbi Sarah Rhinus of Central Synagogue in Manhattan about the history of the eight-day Festival of Lights. Rabbi Rhinus, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us this morning. Sure, great to be here. What is the story behind Hanukkah? The story that most people know about Hanukkah tells about a time, BCE, about 165, when the Syrian Greeks ruled the area of Judea, where the people of Israel lived. And at that time, they were imposing certain restrictions on the Jewish rites of practice and ritual. And the story is really a story of an uprising. A small family named the Maccabees decided that they needed to help take over control of their faith and of their practice, their temple, and so they led this revolt. And the great miracle that happened was that this small group was able to defeat this major army. And the legend of the lights comes from the story of um, when they cleaned up the temple, they needed to find purified oil in order to light the menorah, the lamp, and the light needed to burn for a full week. And they only found a small cruise of oil, which they lit, and miraculously it lasted for eight days. Hanukkah is also known as the Festival of Lights. Actually, the name Festival of Lights uh, signifies, first of all, the first name Festival sheds light on something, to have a pun, um, that a lot of people don't realize, which is that it's not a holiday. It's not a day where you're supposed to take off of work. Um, It's not even a biblical holiday. It's just simply a festival. And because, really, of Christmas, Hanukkah has come to have a real sense of place in the Jewish calendar, but historically it doesn't. So the first really important word is festival. The lights just simply refers to that miracle that that small cruise of oil was able to last for eight days. I would imagine that's one of the biggest misconceptions about Hanukkah is that it's this big holiday for Jewish folks. Absolutely. Even the Jews themselves don't realize that. In fact, once I was teaching some students, uh, third graders, and one of them asked me what the symbol of the presents were. And I said, there's absolutely no place for presents in the traditional story of Hanukkah, and they were kind of bowled over. Um, You know, it's really just a way to feel part of the American culture at a time when there's so much emphasis on Christmas. As a kid, I remember singing, dreidel, 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 I made it out of clay. Where does the dreidel fit into this holiday? Or I should not say holiday. That's right. It's really festival. The dreidel, you know, simply was a top, and there's different legends about how a dreidel became part of the uh, Hanukkah experience, but really it's just a game that was played. The dreidel is just a toy. There's actually no religious significance to it. The menorah, the Hanukkah menorah, does have a relig- is a religious ritual. You know, the lighting of the Hanukkah menorah is a religious ritual, but the dreidel itself is just simply a toy. And it's come to have meaning in the holiday because we've put on it these four Hebrew letters, which represent an acronym 
Nes Gadol Hayasham, which means a great miracle happened there. It's interesting, in Israel, the fourth letter is different. It is a pay, which stands for the word po, which means a great miracle happened here. And that's how it really became associated with the holiday. This is another example of taking something somewhat secular and then making it uh, have some kind of religious significance. If this is an eight-day festival, then why then are there nine candles on a menorah? Well, it's a great question. There's one of the candles that's called a shamash, and that candle is specifically there to kindle the others. It's what kids know as the helper candle. So you always light the shamash first, and then you use that light to kindle the others. One other thing I've noticed about the menorah is that they come in all different designs. Yes. There are no rules? Almost no rules. The one rule is that the shamash needs to somehow be distinct from the others. It has to be set apart. But except for that, you, you know, people use their creativity. Now, there are also traditional Hanukkah foods, like the latka. Yeah, and there are a lot of people who think that, you know, we're, we eat latkes because of the potatoes, but this is not the festival of potatoes. It's the festival of lights. And, you know, of course, in ancient times, uh, people didn't even really use candles. They were using oil. And so traditionally, we eat foods that are heavy in oil. So this is one of those festivals where you really have to prepare yourself, especially if someone has to watch out for cholesterol. And in Sephardic communities, particularly in Israel, you'll see that the tradition is not necessarily to eat latkes, which are potato pancakes fried in oil, but to eat sufganiyot, which are jelly donuts. I also notice gold coins at this time of year. The tradition of giving gelt, which is the Yiddish word for money, uh, that was probably something that also set the stage for presents. And that was just, you know, that was one way of celebrating the festival, that children would receive some coins. And now, you know, we make them chocolate, and we often use them in playing dreidel with the children. Rabbi Sarah Rhinus, thanks so much for taking the time. Sure, it's a pleasure. Rabbi Rhinus is with Manhattan's Central Synagogue. The holidays are about spending time with family, but when a loved one is not near, the celebration can be dimmed. The picture in the flame is a story that draws on the Jewish tradition of Hanukkah to help drive home the importance of family during the holiday season. Panina Shram is a renowned storyteller from New York City. This morning, she combines her talents with those of singer-guitarist Gerard Ettery to bring us this story. First night of Hanukkah, and my grandmother, my Bobe, lit the Shamas candle and used it to kindle the candle that stood all alone in the menorah on this first night of Hanukkah. And Bobe sang the blessings with my grandfather, my Zede. Eloheinu <laughs> 
And as my Bubba stared at the flame of the first candle, her eyes began to fill with tears, and she looked so very far away in thought. My Zeta said to me, don't worry about your Bubba's tears. Each year on the first night of Hanukkah, your Bubba looks into the flame of that first candle and sees it filled with a very special memory. Come here, Bubba, invited my Bubba. I want to tell you a story about what happened to me when I was a child, just like you, your age. <laughs> it was a night just like tonight, many, many years ago. And this is the story that my Bubba told me. We lived in a small village called Ashtetl, and our home was small too. It had only two rooms. One was a bedroom for my mama and papa, and the other was a kitchen and a living room all in one. And my brother Chaim and my sister Esther and I slept on straw mattresses, and we would huddle together in front of the big stove in the kitchen to keep warm. It was the first night of Hanukkah, and we were busy getting ready. We had to wash the walls and sweep the floor and cover it with a new layer of straw. And Chaim had to bring in the wood from outside to keep the fire burning in the stove. And Mama was cooking. Now, most of the time, we ate only bread, onions, some milk, and a few vegetables. But as if by magic, Mama always had some treats for the holidays. And for Hanukkah, she made little cakes and delicious latkes. And all day long, the whole house smelled of potatoes and onions frying. Oh, it was very cold. The wind howled and crept into the house through cracks in the walls and from under the door. We were already dressed in our holiday clothes, waiting for Papa to come home for the untif. He was a woodcutter and had taken a cartload of wood to the home of a customer in the next town. And we knew that he should have been home by, by now. But he was always home in time to begin the holidays. Mama said nothing. She hurried back and forth between the kitchen stove and the kitchen table. And finally, when her work was done, she sat down in her wooden rocking chair and waited. And we waited. When the wind rattled the front door, we would look up anxiously, hoping it was Papa. But it was only the wind. Papa was still out there in the snow somewhere, trying to get home to us. Eventually, the time came to light the menorah. But none of us said a word to Mama. We would light it only when Papa came home. Outside, we could hear the voices of some of the men singing on their way home from the shul after the evening prayers. Bim, bum, bim, biri, bum. And even though the wind howled, bim, bum, <laughs> the nigunim of the bim, men bim, could be heard clearly. Bim, bum, bim, 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 bum. Bim, bum, bim, biri, bum. Only your papa could hear the nigunim. Mama whispered like a prayer. Suddenly, Mama grabbed her shawl and draped it over her head and around her shoulders, and she ran outside. What was she doing? 
We waited. And when she returned, Mama told us, get our coats, follow her quickly. We left the house. Immediately, our eyes began to water from the cold. Our faces grew red, and we pulled up our scarves to cover our mouths and noses. We stayed behind Mama. She led us through the town, past the butcher shop, the marketplace. The snow was up to our knees, and we had to lift our legs high as we trudged along. But finally, we reached the little shul. And as we opened the door of the synagogue to enter... Snow blew in and made the floorboards wet. The shul had only one room like most of the houses. And more people came in after us. And soon the little room was filled. The whole town was there. And in the midst of the people was our Rebbe, our rabbi. He wore his long black coat and sat behind one of the long narrow tables in the center of the room. He lifted his head and looked out at all of us through eyes as black as coal. I was worried. Why were we here? What was our Rebbe about to do? I mean, the night of Hanukkah, the first night of Hanukkah, everybody should be home. Instead, we were here in the, in the shul. And then, in a haunting, trembling voice, the Rebbe began that mysterious sing-song chant called a nigan. And almost without realizing, we began to sing with the Rebbe. Our bodies swayed back and forth to the beat of this mysterious melody. And the shul shook and vibrations ran along the floorboards. We sailed onto each other. We sang louder and louder. Then the singing stopped. All of a sudden there was silence. The Rebbe had stopped, and as one voice, we stopped too. We stopped singing. No one said a word. The Rebbe opened his eyes and looked beyond us to the door. And as his glance reached the door, it burst open. David, cried Mama. Papa, Papa, we cried and ran with Mama to hug our Papa. He shivered as we held on to him. His dark beard was hidden by frost and ice. We held on to him and hugged him. And my Bubba turned to me and said, David, you were named for my father, David. But, Bobby, I asked, what happened? It was a miracle. My father had been traveling home in that storm all day. It was snowing so hard he couldn't even see two feet in front of him. And when it grew dark, he almost gave up all hope of ever finding his way home. And then he heard singing. 
he heard the music. Just like Mama thought, the sound of our voices singing in the shul reached him in the woods and guided him home. The song, the voices carried on the wind. <laughs> and so you see, David, Hanukkah was a time of miracles for the Maccabees. And it was a time of miracles for your bubba, too. And whenever I light that first candle in the menorah, I see a picture of my papa in the flame. The flames hold memories. Bim, bum, bim, biddy, bum. Bim, bum, bim, biddy, bum. Bim, bum, bim, 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 bum. Bim, bum, bim, biddy, bum. Praise God for this miracle and the brave Maccabee. That all men shall be free. Bim bum bim bidi bum. Bim bum bim bidi bum. Bim bum bim bidi bum. The Picture in the Flame was performed by storyteller Panina Schramm and singer-guitarist Gerard Ettery. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. In the 1900s, a wave of Jewish immigration from Eastern Europe made Manhattan's Lower East Side the most crowded square mile on Earth. Today, the neighborhood has a different feel. New groups of immigrants have moved in, setting up their own shops and religious sites. The Lower East Side has also become swankier, with hip boutiques, nightlife, restaurants, and luxury housing. But there are efforts to preserve its history as a Jewish enclave. One of them is a cell phone walking tour created by Candide Media Works. It's called The Lower East Side, Birthplace of Dreams. Actor-comedian Jerry Stiller narrates the tour. Miles Crombie is its creator. A cell phone walking tour, it's a new concept, but actually it's very, very simple. That the way it works is just like one of those recorded audio guides in museums, except in this case you use your own cell phone and you're out on the street. Welcome to Birthplace of Dreams, a talking street cell phone walking tour through the history of the Jewish Lower East Side. Hello, I'm Jerry Stiller. Thanks for joining me. Imagine this. The year is 1900 and you've just arrived from Eastern Europe and you find yourself here in the middle of the Lower East Side. It's a slum. It offers a number of things that are unique. You can hear dramatic readings from historical figures who factor in these various locations on the Lower East Side. And you can hear historic audio and historic recordings. And you can hear interviews with experts along the way. By the late 1800s, this was the center of the American garment trade, which was the biggest industry in New York. According to historian Daniel Bender, the garment industry settled here mainly because of the bottom line. Immigrants 
charged lower prices Any drama benefits from being character-driven, and in this case, we're lucky enough to have great characters. So apart from things like the living condition, as you mentioned, we get characters like Meyer Lansky. As the script says, this is not a stop about immigrant kids making good, because Meyer Lansky grew up to be arguably the creator of modern organized crime and his alliance with a guy named Charlie Luciano. Maya Lansky was barely a teenager when he was walking along Hester Street one winter day around 1915. Suddenly, perhaps on this very block, a gang of kids from Little Italy appeared. Their leader, Charlie Luciano, demanded protection money. Lansky clenched his fists and told Luciano to shove it. The flexibility of the tour is definitely one of the benefits, and the idea is if you're on stop three and you finish that one, if before you go to stop four, if you want to look around or if you want to stop for a cup of coffee or a bite to eat or something, that's no problem. You can go to stop four whenever you want. I'm Jerry Stiller. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you continue to explore the Lower East Side. But now, let's eat. After each stop on the tour, please hang up. When you get to the next stop, redial the main number. On most phones, you can redial by pressing send twice. Miles Crombie is the creator of the Lower East Side Birthplace of Dreams cell phone walking tour. If you'd like to get in on it, the number to call is 212-262-8687. One of the few Jewish-owned businesses that has stood the test of time on the Lower East Side is Streit's Matzah Factory. It's been family-owned and operated for five generations, with no plans to close up shop. Aaron Gross is Streit's national sales manager. He took me on a tour of the factory, which is located on Rivington Street. We've had this factory here since 1925. My great-great-grandfather Aaron Streit started out on Pitt Street in 1916, which is probably three blocks from where this location is now. We started off with one building, now we have four buildings on the corner of Rivington and uh, Suffolk. It's great to still be surviving down here in the Lower East Side. What's the history behind Strites? How did it come to be? Uh, it's, there's, there's a bunch of different opinions. You ask my grandmother, you get something. If you ask my aunt, you get something. But I always hear it as my great-great-grandfather Aaron Strite was in the sign business and he met up with a local rabbi here on the Lower East Side, and they talked, and they decided to start up a small local bakery, basically just to feed this neighborhood and, and to be just down here. And then it, it slowly expanded, and my uh, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, bought out his partner, uh, the local rabbi, and then he took his two sons in the business in the, in the 30s, and then it grew from there, and we became national and now international. I would imagine that you must have spent a lot of time here as a kid in this neighborhood. Growing up, I was always down here, especially uh, summer times, you know, when I was out of school and just seeing how the neighborhood changed from, from the 30s and 40s where this was the Jewish neighborhood, probably, you know, the largest in the United States. And, and um, we had, used to have lines around the block going to our little retail store where I remember then in the 80s and, and 70s, you couldn't walk out. I wasn't allowed to even step foot outside. It was such a dangerous neighborhood. And now the neighborhood's coming back. It's not so much a Jewish neighborhood, but it is actually just changing and becoming such a, a lot nicer neighborhood now. And, and we're actually going to try to pick up the retail store again. And where that was business we kind of gave up on uh, just because there was no foot traffic. Now we're going to try to re revamp that store and make it into, uh, try to make it to be the kosher destination store, the Lower East Side once again. Yeah, clearly if you walk around now, there are a few signs that this was the Jewish Lower East Side. Right. Right down the street from us, there used to be Kedem Wine, uh, Shapiro's Wine. Ratner's was right around the corner. 
and all those places now are gone. And I just I'm, I feel it's so important that we remain here. Um, and we've seen a lot of changes. We've we've gone through the hard times this neighborhood. Now we're seeing the benefits, and we can get that retail store back and get actual people back down here to visit us. Do you want to show us some of the facility here and uh, what you do? Yeah, definitely. I'll show you around the facility. We're going to be walking right in from Rivington Street right here into, this is called the picking area. This is where the matzah is coming out of the oven. And there's going to be three men. We're the last company that, that's still going to be doing taking matzah out of the oven by hand. Most of it is just automatically it comes out of the oven, gets split, and, and puts into boxes. We have something here where we have three men that are going to be taking the matzah out of the oven. They're going to be checking it for quality. They're going to be breaking it, putting it into baskets, which is going to give it time to cool before it goes into the packing machinery. So this is the oven. The ovens here were built in the 30s. Uh, we haven't changed much of the ovens. We've painted them and cleaned them up every year. We take them apart and, and check them for any defects. But the ovens, are these are the same exact ovens that we've had back in the 30s. Has it been difficult to stay here? Have there been development pressures? Have folks tried to buy you out? Uh, all the time. There's, somebody, there's a developer walking down, coming by. They see this big space, and they say, you know, why aren't you guys a uh, residential building yet? Uh, it's not something we're really interested in. It's... We're matzo bakers, we're not developers, um, and we enjoy being here. And we find we 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 spent through all the bad times here, all the bad years in this neighborhood. Now the neighborhood's not nice again. We don't want to leave now. Is there anything else that you would like to show us here? Uh, I can show you around upstairs real quick to the mixing rooms and some of the packing line, which is pretty neat. I'm going to take you down through the through the center of the factory just to show you the show you the base of the ovens. The ovens here are 72 feet long. Uh, the ovens cook at 900 degrees, and the matzah is going to cook for about just a minute and a half from start to finish. That's it, just a minute and a half in the oven. Just a minute and a half in the oven at 900 degrees. It's pretty warm in there. The process is going to all start on the second. It's going to start on the fifth floor, actually, where the where the flour comes in, which we get daily loads of flour coming in, and we have a man up there that's dumping the flour, which is going to go down through a silo to the second floor, where it's going to get measured, mixed with the water for three minutes, and then dumped down a chute to get fed to the first floor ovens. So the process from when the flour and the water st uh, start mixing has to be done within 18 minutes for, in order for it to be kosher for Passover. This process is done in about six minutes, seven minutes, to ensure that it all is kosher for Passover. And at any one time in the factory, we're going to have uh, five mishkiam walking around, overseeing, overseeing the production, making sure everything is kosher for Passover as well. So it's something that being on six floors rather than one modern facility doesn't make it more difficult. We're very labor intensive. We have anywhere from 40 to 50 men and five mishkiam here all at the same, all at one time producing matzah. Right now we're on the second floor uh, packaging room. We have we have ovens on the first, an oven on the first floor and an oven on the third floor. And both of the when the matzah comes out of the ovens, we said we have we have men there picking it out of the oven. And they're going to put them into baskets, which are going to work their way. The third floor baskets will weave down to the second floor, and the first floor ba baskets will weave up to the uh, second floor. The, the baskets take about 20 minutes for the matzah to go in. It gets out of the oven to get in the box. That gives the matzah ample time to cool before it goes in the box, so you're not going to get any mildew or anything like that. You don't, never want to put the hot product directly into the box. Uh, this is all the packaging line. The packaging line is, is, is really neat just because it's such old equipment. Uh, it's all from the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Everything's a bunch of gears, not computerized, and you may lose a chain, but we'll fix it and get it going. We have two mechanics on duty at all times as well. It's really incredible just to watch because you get a sense of the history just by 
watching these baskets roll through here. Right, this was something that was ingenious at the time. I mean, it was my great 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 grandfather that invented the whole basket system. That, and he thought about giving it up time to cool and and uh, and just making use of this not much space that we have here, and having different different segments of the production on different floors makes it very difficult. But it. It seems like this building was made to be a monster factory, which it wasn't. It was at first, I think, originally was a uh, firehouse and two different residential buildings. And the third one, I wasn't the fourth one. I'm not sure what it was, but we've integrated. It looks like it always was a monster factory the way it's, the way it was done, which is pretty neat. This right, this is the mix room. This is where it all begins. Like I said, all the flour comes in on the fifth floor and gets fed down through silos down to here. This is where the flour and the water first are going to touch and it's going to mix for three minutes and then dump down to a chute and be in the oven within another two, out of the oven within another minute and a half. Everyone in here that's handling the product has to be Shomer Shabbos Jews. They all have to be religious observant Jews in order to work in this room. They do actually take challah from each batch. It's done in a batch system where it's mixing, so challah is going to be take, taken from the batch and there's going to be a blessing on each individual batch before it goes into the oven. What's production like? How much do you put out on a daily basis? We're going to put out, uh, the easiest way to, to do it is say two and a half tractor trailers full of matzah a day. That'll be the easy way to describe it. Aaron Gross is the national sales manager for Streit's Matzah Factory on Manhattan's Lower East Side. The company's been an institution there since 1925. In addition to matzahs, you'll find the Streit's name on goods specific to Hanukkah, including candles and chocolate gold coins. On next week's Cityscape, a Christmas theme. Remember, Cityscape is available for podcast at WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Have a happy Hanukkah.